gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are in year two of Dispatch um, stuff, uh, adventure, shenanigans, and um, uh, I look very much forward to talking to you guys about year 10. That is, of course, if we don't have a massive debt crisis and end up um, drinking puddled water and fighting over the last rusty canned goods left um, in our uh, depleted post-apocalyptic landscape, um, which brings me to our guest today, uh, one of my favorite wonks, um, in the in the most positive, non-pejorative sense of the word. Um, I've known him for a long time. He's an old hand, a, a fan favorite here, and uh, he is now senior scholar, scholar in residence. What, what's your title at the Manhattan Institute? Senior fellow and leading nerd. There you go. And that's to be a leading nerd at the Manhattan Institute and an organization run by Rihan Salam, the guy, a, a greater proselytizer of board games in adulthood I have never met is saying something. So, uh, Brian Riedel, welcome back to the, uh, the Remnant. You've got this massive chart book thing that explains all sorts of terrible stuff with numbers and math. And I was going to print some of it out, but I don't have enough red ink toner cartridge. Uh, so why don't you give us the lay of the land? What's the chart book? Why'd you do it? Um, is there hope for humanity? Sure. Th thanks, Jonah. Um, I did this chart book. It is, I do it every year. It gets bigger and bigger every year because the red ink gets bigger and bigger every year. It is called Spending Taxes and Deficits, a book of charts. And you can find it on the Manhattan Institute website. Uh, you just Google Manhattan Institute, Brian Riedel, go to my page. You'll see this chart book. It's a hundred. We'll also put a link in the show notes so people can find it. It's 118 pages of budget charts. And I do this for two reasons. First, because there's so much damn information out there, uh, misinformation out there. Pretty much everything you see in social media and even in a lot of places, traditional media on spending, taxes, deficits, is just completely not true. It, it is spectacularly not true. You hear things like tax cuts are the main reason we have long-term deficits. You hear that the rich pay no taxes. You hear that defense spending is driving our budget problems. All of it's not true. And what I did is I put together 118 pages of charts that's using the official data from CBO, OMB, Treasury. There's no tricks here. So that you can actually see for yourself the budget picture rather than falling into this vortex of misinformation that we see everywhere. I mean, again, almost everything you read online about budget, taxes, spending, and deficits is, is spectacularly wrong. And this will help you know, understand. And second, if, if, there's a, if there's a theme to the budget chart book, it's that we face severe long-term fiscal dangers uh, from soaring spending and deficits. Um, according to CBO, we face $112 trillion in baseline budget deficits over the next 30 years. That's before Biden does anything. $112 trillion shortfall, almost entirely from Social Security and Medicare. And that's assuming interest rates stay low. Um, so I, I kind of walk through 
what's driving our long-term budget picture? How bad is it? Um, you know, uh, how it could get worse if interest rates rise. And I go through things like, if you think you can solve the budget, I have menus of reforms. So it's it's 118 pages of of nerdy goodness. Okay, so, and I, I, I do want to tell people, it is, even for... Um the math impaired. I'm not enumerate. I want to be clear. I mean, I can count. I can add short columns of double digit numbers if you give me a second, but I'm not a math guy. And, um, but I can understand this thing. It makes sense. I look at the pictures. It's got numbers on them. That makes sense to me. It's not crazy. Um, and so if you're interested in, you know, uh, finding a reason to get the revolver out of the closet, um, and say goodbye to it all, I highly recommend taking a look at the book and drinking a glass of scotch, and then you'll be there. So no, all right, so let's start with some of the misinformation stuff. Um, uh, the, I actually wrote, let me, put, let me do it this way. A couple of weeks ago, I actually wrote a column saying I'd actually be open to raising taxes if all of the tax increases, which I'm not in favor of. And, and there are good arguments against raising taxes because economic growth is really important, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not in favor of raising inefficient taxes. I would get rid of the corporate tax rate entirely if it were up to me. But whatever, we could figure out some taxes to raise on the wealthy. I would be in favor of it. If 100% of them went to paying off the, the trillions of dollars we've, we've spent on the pandemic in the last five years. You know, after World War II, we decided to pay off that debt. After the pandemic, we're arguing about how much more to spend. So why don't we start there? How much did we actually spend or commit to spending and over what time, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic until, you know, today, Tuesday, October 12th at 11.14 a.m.? I mean, just total pandemic-related spending or other yeah, broad, related well, pandemic and also like saving the economy from cratering. You know, the like sure, sure pandemic-induced oh, spending. Sure. Uh, well, we before the pandemic, we were projected to one to run a trillion-dollar deficit in 2020 and again in 2021, and instead we ran a three trillion-dollar deficit in 2020 and again in 2021. So, the, the total cost of the the pandemic, the recession, and the legislative response was about four trillion dollars. Probably about three to three and a half trillion of that, or probably about three trillion of that was legislation, and one trillion of it was the natural economy reducing tax revenues, raising costs for social programs. So that was about four trillion dollars in legitimate costs. That's not counting a lot of the the March stimulus that they did that was really after the pandemic began winding down. This is the American the American rescue plan that President Biden did in March that was also 1.9 trillion dollars that really didn't even have that much to do with the actual pandemic. So if you count that, then you're up closer to about 6 trillion dollars that we've spent. Okay, so to clarify for listeners who intuitively understand why the talking point from the Biden administration that the new infrastructure infrastructure bill won't cost anything um, because we're going to quote unquote pay for it. Um, when I heard you talking just now, you said you were counting costs, for, at least for part of that, as measured by how much the deficit increased. 
but that wouldn't capture if we actually had paid for something, right? And, and so it didn't add to the debt. Why don't you walk through why, you know, that I sometimes feel like wonks have created a problem for ourselves by thinking that if it shows up in the debt numbers, then it costs something. But if it doesn't show up in the debt numbers, it doesn't cost something. And that's not actually how it works, right? It adds more debt, but if something doesn't add more debt, that doesn't mean it doesn't add more cost. Right. If I if if I purchase something that's $100, it costs me $100. It doesn't necessarily add to my credit card debt long term, but if I if if we if we add a trillion dollars in spending and we raise taxes by a trillion dollars, it costs us a trillion dollars obviously. We no longer we have a trillion dollars less in our bank account than we had otherwise. Um and that that's a little sleight of hand or lie that the Biden administration and the Democrats are using. They're, they're saying as long as, it, as long as spending doesn't add to the deficit, it is therefore free. Um, and again, there's a difference between the cost goes on the credit card versus the cost just came out of my paycheck. There's still a cost either way. And what I was measuring, I was measuring, as, as you mentioned, the deficit cost of the pandemic because we didn't really pay for any of it. We didn't raise taxes at all during the pandemic, which was which was smart. We shouldn't have. Uh, but that cost entirely went on the credit card. But cost that goes out of taxes is a cost too, obviously. Um, all right, so let's get back to the, the laying the groundwork stuff. Uh, I think it's in chart 25. You note that since 1990, non-defense discretionary spending grew four times faster than defense spending. And... So why don't you talk through, like, one of the things, if you're talking about misinformation on budgetary and debt things, it seems like the number one political sleight of hand BS is, if not waste, fraud, and abuse, it's, you know, spending money on this program or that program or this this bridge to nowhere and earmark kind of stuff, when most of that stuff is a rounding error on what we're actually spending money on. So just walk us in percentage kind of terms or proportion terms. Where's our money going? Yeah, it's it's not all going to defense. <laughs> there's, there's if you if you're on Twitter, they say the money the the, def- the money's all going to defense. Well, defense was 49% of the budget in the 1960s. It was 15% of the budget before the pandemic. Now now during the pandemic it's about 10% of the budget. Defense spending is about to drop to its lowest percent of GDP since the Great Depression. So, the idea that it's defense spending is nonsense. In fact, defense spending uh, as you mentioned, has grown significantly faster on the discretionary side than defense. So the long-term budget Non-defense are, spending has grown faster than defense. Yeah, non-defense spending has grown four times faster than defense since 1990, specifically um, adjusted for inflation. Non-defense is up 152% since 1990, and defense spending is up 36% since 1990, adjusted for inflation. Where all the money is going is pretty much Social Security and healthcare, that that spending is is overwhelmingly driving uh, the the budget the budget numbers. If you take a look uh, from two thousand and eight until twenty thirty, so like a, a twenty two year period in which we're kind of in the middle right now, defense spending grows five billion dollars adjusted for inflation. Non defense discretionary grows one hundred and thirty nine billion. Other entitlements grow one hundred and fifteen billion. Social security and health entitlements grow by two trillion. <laughs> so, 
So it, there's no mystery here. Uh, the, the growth of the budget is almost entirely social security and health entitlements. Um, and what, just like, is there a, just a clean, quick number on what, how much of the budget is actually just straight discretionary spending versus all other things? I mean, they, and explain what discretionary spending is versus non-discretionary. Sure. Discretionary spending is the stuff that actually goes through the annual appropriations process that Congress decides how much to spend money on. Defense, K-12 through education, internet, foreign aid, housing. This is the stuff where Congress says, we're going to spend $500 billion next year on this program, and they write a check for $500 billion. Mandatory spending or entitlements are on autopilot. Congress doesn't actually decide how much to spend. They create a program. They decide who's eligible. They set a benefit formula. It spends what it spends. Depends on how many people sign up. Depends on where they are in the eligibility formula. And those programs are often, once they're created, you don't actually revisit them every year. They're on autopilot until you change your mind. You know, you create a social security program, it's on autopilot for the next hundred years. In terms of where we're spending, in, in the 60s, um, most of the budget was discretionary. About two-thirds of the budget was discretionary. Today, two-thirds of the budget is mandatory, which means that when Congress is, is doing the budget every year, two-thirds of the spending is already on autopilot. It's not even part of the annual budget process. They're just fighting over the final one-third. And if, say, uh, you know, a, a president wants to trim the growth of entitlement spending, he can't just put it in his budget and veto the bills. It's on autopilot. You have to get Congress to change the path of entitlement spending. And that's one of the reasons that even Republicans who are serious about reigning in entitlements haven't been able to, because it's already on autopilot, and you actually have to get Democrats to help you pass a bill changing that autopilot growth, and Democrats won't do it. All right, so I remember... I think you remember. I think you were probably running around with a binder full of stuff at this time, somewhere in the halls of Congress. Uh, this thing called the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, more commonly known as Simpson Bowles, or for those who uh, had it in for Simpson, Bowles Simpson. Um, and it was this big deficit debt uh, uh, reform commission the whole idea was to, to to for congress to punt this stuff to a blue ribbon committee to come up with recommendations and then everyone would have to sort of take them or leave them kind of thing it would have been great if it worked it didn't work for all sorts of reasons there are people i am sure still in washington who get very angry about who's to blame for it failing but uh i'm not one of them i can't really remember it but um if i if if memory serves the basic idea was to make sure to try and keep the total government spending and total government revenues around 21% of GDP. And um, for fiscal hawks, this was uh, you know, too generous. And for fiscal uh, non-hawk, for fiscal job of the huts, it was <laughs> um, uh, too draconian. Um, what I'm, um, what is the current how much of the GDP does our government take up now? And how do we compare to like other countries? 
Well, right now, Washington is well. This this year is, is an odd year, <laughs> right? I, I, in fairness, that's right. I, mean, I was looking at this, these numbers recently, and there's a lot of spikes because of pandemic and all that. And that again, that's fair, right? I mean, this year, I mean, spending is, is going to be close to thirty percent of GDP because because of the odd pandemic spike. Other than that, um, generally, federal spending is about twenty twenty two percent of GDP. Um, is it that low? Really? That's not what I remember finding when I, um, was looking at this. It it was 20, it it was 22% right before the pandemic. Um, but it is, it is, that's, that's just Washington. Of course, state and local add another 10 and a half percent of GDP, get us to 31. It's 22, but it's scheduled to, to, to keep rising. It's, it's it's scheduled to rise to about 24% of GDP by the end of this decade. And 32% of GDP over the next couple decades using the CBO's very rosy, very rosy uh, assumptions. So it's not even just that the problem is necessarily right now that that at least before the pandemic that we were so far above above 21 is that we're heading in that path up, up towards the 30s. Revenues have been very steady over the last several decades. Um since 1960, revenues have averaged 17.3% of GDP, and that's almost what they were before the pandemic. And that's what, and that fact, they're going to actually rise a bit to 18.5% of GDP over the next 30 years. But again, the, the problem long term is if revenue has always stayed in that 17 to 18 band. And the interesting thing about the 17 to 18 band for revenue is that it's regardless of taxes. I mean, revenues were actually lower when we had the Eisenhower 91% tax rates. They actually collected a lower share of GDP um, from individual income taxes than we do uh, today. The problem is spending is going to spike up into the 30s. And it's almost impossible to get taxes to jump that high. So we're, we're in the low 20s right now, or I think, you know, other than the pandemic, um, we're going to be in the we're going to be in the low 20s the rest of the decade and then keep going from there. So I think we talked about this the last time you were on here. Um, you know, the thing I've heard, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say it. I've heard lots of my conservative friends say it. I don't hang out enough with liberal budget wonks to know to confirm it firsthand but there's this i don't know if i don't think it's fair to call it a conspiracy theory i think it's just a theory that one of the reasons why the left doesn't care about spending wildly is is it's sort of a field of dreams thing if you build the welfare state the revenue will come right the idea is that if you can expand the the baseline budget enough and cram this stuff in with gimmicks and and sh- and sunsetted programs and stuff. Once people get the various welfare state, sort of European welfare state entitlements that that the left wants, then they can talk about how to raise you know the revenue from the middle class for it. Um, do you think there's that much strategery going on? I mean, you would think, given the 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 indiscipline of like various members of the squad and you know, other people who are pushing for this stuff that someone would actually say this stuff out loud. Um, and yet I never hear them saying, okay, well, you know, there's never an open mic moment where we say, look, the real goal here is to get us is to create the bandwidth so that we can then, you know, do a European style that to get the revenue to sustain socialized medicine and guaranteed income and all these kinds of things. It always feels like the conservatives are just 
trying to find a explanation for why they're so cavalier about spending money. Do you have a, do you, where, where do you come down on that? I have, I haven't heard it from the Hill, but I have had this conversation with, with li- some liberal wonks and columnists over the years. And it's usually at the very end of a very long debate about our unsustainable budgets and the fact that a lot of their new proposals are absolutely not paid for. You often towards the end of that conversation, 45 minutes later, they will mention that, well, once we get all the spending locked in, we know that it's not going to go anywhere. Um, the, the history of entitlements is once an entitlement is created, it is, it is virtually impossible to get rid of. It builds its own constituency. Um, I mean, look at Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare seemed like the most fragile entitlement created in decades. Uh, Republicans spent a, a years trying to get that thing repealed, and it died. They couldn't do it. Uh, even even with a Republican government, Republicans couldn't couldn't repeal it. And the, you know, the danger with with these programs is not just that they're hard to get rid of, but that particularly with Social Security and Medicare, once the baby boomers are re- are all retired and 80 years old in 15 or 20 years, you're not going to be able to cut Social Security and Medicare. You're not going to be able to you know trim the benefits when they're 80. The time to do that was when the baby boomers were were 45. And and Democrats that I talk to know this full well. They they say, look, let's say we end up wrong, the Democrats say, and that we can't afford all of the spending and that deficits maybe do matter at a certain point. There is no way you guys are going to get rid of the spending and we know it. And so I think some some liberals have admitted that there is a certain degree of trying to run the clock out on us, that if they can lock in as much spending as possible for as long as possible and kind of obfuscate the issue, eventually the benefits are locked in and there's really nowhere to go but taxes. And this is one reason why, as a conservative, I am much more aggressive about trying to get a grand deal that would even involve some degree of tax hikes for entitlement reforms now rather than 10 years from now, even if it's not a great deal. Because I'm telling you, you think we're going to get a bad deal now? Wait 10 years when the baby boomers are 75 and 80 years old and 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 there's no way to trim or reform benefits and even more entitlements are locked in. You think you're going to get a bad deal now? It's, it's going to be worse in 10 or 15 years. Which is what a lot of us were saying 10 and 15 years ago. <laughs> and that's why we're not even getting, and, and that's why 10 or 15 years ago, Republicans were saying there could be no revenue on the table as part of a deal, no matter what. And now a lot of conservatives are saying, you know, we would take a 50, 50 deal at this point because they're saying 10 years from now, it's going to be 1090 is going to be the deal we're going to get. So a lot of conservatives have already shifted just up, for the degree that the clock has been run out to this point, because again, you know, two thirds of all baby boomers have already retired um, or almost two thirds of all baby boomers have already retired. You're getting to the point where it's going to get too hard to reform these programs. Yeah. So let's talk for two seconds about taxes because, you know, and and I have relied on your stuff in the past quite a bit on, on the tax stuff, particularly your point that you could just simply confiscate all of the wealth of the top 1% and it still wouldn't get you close to where Bernie and AOC want us to go. So, you know, let's, let's let's start this way. People keep, you know, AOC words address this as tax the rich as if we don't 
tax rich people in this country. Um, and, um, and in fact, our taxes are much more progressive than a lot of European countries. So why don't you just sort of talk about the progress? What, what does it mean to have a progressive tax rate? It doesn't mean progressive, like the squad progressive. <laughs> it's an accounting term. Um, but like, talk about how we compare to other countries in terms of, uh, our, the distribution of our tax base. The United, according to the OECD back in 2008, the U.S. has the most progressive income and payroll taxes in the entire OECD, and it's not even close. And the way they measure progressivity is take the top 10%, what portion of the income do you earn and what portion of the taxes do you pay? And what they determined was that the top 10% in in the United States, pay income and payroll taxes about a third higher to their proportion of the income, which is the most progressive. Um, Keep in mind, this is the most progressive, not even counting the VATs that Europe has. Europe is funded a lot by value-added taxes, which are essentially national sales taxes, which really hit middle and lower income families even harder. So even if you don't even count that, the U.S. is still more progressive than them. And if you count those middle-class VAT taxes, the U.S. is multitudes more progressive in our tax code than than European countries. It's not necessarily because we tax the rich so much more. We tax tax the rich at comparable levels to Europe. Um, our, our Our marginal tax rates are pretty similar to those for Europe. The big difference between the U.S. and Europe is we don't tax the middle class or lower. Uh, in 2019, um, here's a fun note, how much federal income taxes were collected from the middle earning quintile in 2019? Keep in mind, we collected that year about um, $3 trillion. $9 billion in income taxes were collected from the middle earning quintile. $9 <laughs> billion total. Um, basically nearly the entire federal income tax comes from the top 20% of earners. The bottom 80% collectively pay almost zero income tax. That doesn't mean your family doesn't pay any, but it means some families pay some and some families get so many tax credits that they pay negative. So overall, we have by far the most top-heavy income and payroll tax code in the OECD and like the effect is even magnified by the fact that again, we don't have the huge uh, VAT taxes that 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 Europe does that hit their middle class even harder. Yeah, I mean, um, um, and we should also note that poor middle class people do pay other taxes, you know, or payroll taxes, payroll taxes, kind of yeah. sure. But um, we have a piece up at the Dispatch today from a, a Swedish economist, um, ex- trying to explain that the you know, the Nordic countries, what, you know, we would call the Scandinavian countries, but some of the Scandinavian countries, some of the Nordic countries are in Scandinavian, but that's another story um, for another podcast. Um, he has a piece trying to explain the, 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 the socialist utopia that Bernie and these people keep talking about doesn't actually exist. And I'll just read this one paragraph. It says, instead, the big difference between the U.S. and Sweden, taxation-wise, is how the poor are taxed. 
Americans who make less than $12,000 per year pay no federal income taxes. Many who make more than that still end up paying a net zero in taxes once deductions are accounted for. In Sweden, the equivalent is about $2,300. On any money you make above that threshold, you pay a tax rate of about 30% plus payroll taxes. What about deductions? In the U.S., the average tax refund last year was $2,707. In Sweden, it was $821. On top of this, Sweden has a national sales tax of 25% on almost everything you buy. And the poor spend a greater share of their income. This tax disproportionately hurts them. And what I loved about this, it's a great piece, and I highly recommend it. We'll put it in the show notes. I like, there was a guy in the comments from France, and he says, I agree with the author. We all love our welfare programs, minimum income and social security. We are also aware that we pay a 20% sales tax, that 25% of our salary goes to the state, not counting the income tax, and that social security has a larger budget than the French state. It is counted separately. Um, We like it and wouldn't want it any other way. But if you wish for a European welfare state, you do realize that you have to know what you're talking about. Anyway, this is the thing that drives me crazy is like you listen to Bernie and these people talk about how they do things in Denmark and they don't know what they're talking about in Denmark. All those countries don't have wealth taxes anymore because they didn't work. Um, and so it's sort of like, how do you how do you craft tax and spend policies based upon if I said, you know, we should we should base our tax policies on Narnia. Everyone would understand that's a dumb thing to say, but the Sweden and Denmark that Bernie Sanders is talking about and the Democrats are talking about is almost just as imaginary, but they think it's real and they, they craft policy around. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, to put a couple more numbers on it, if you just take total income, total federal taxes, payroll taxes, everything, um, the bottom 20% pays a total tax rate of negative 3.4%. The second to bottom income quintile pays a total federal tax rate of 2.3%. And the middle 20% pays a total federal tax rate of 10%, nearly all of which is payroll taxes. I mean, as you said, this is so much lower than anything Europe does. And so, you know, I tell people, if you want to spend like Europe, you got to tax like Europe. And Europe doesn't finance socialism on the backs of the 3%. They finance it where the money is, the middle class. In my chart book, um, on, I have a couple tax menus where if you want to raise taxes by a certain percentage of GDP or a certain number of nominal dollars, there's a whole big table of how much you can raise from each tax. And what you'll notice is that all the policies that raise the most money are the middle class taxes, you know, raising the income tax across the board, raising the payroll tax across the board, doing a value added tax raises multitudes more than even the most exorbitant taxes on the rich. And the dirty little secret of the left is they've made socialism more popular with a lot of younger people by promising them that it is a complete free lunch, that only the rich will pay the taxes. It won't cost you anything. And I wrote an article for National Review Online recently where I walked through the polling on the progressive agenda. And what I discovered is that if you tell people in polls that the middle class might have to pay for this stuff, the popularity collapses. Um, you ask people, how much would you pay per month in higher electric bills to, 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 uh, for, for climate policy? Two-thirds of Americans wouldn't even pay $10 a month. 
for for climate policy. There was a great Vox poll from 2016 that I referenced that asked, "Would you pay? What would you pay in taxes for national health care or free college?" And the fascinating thing was, two thirds of Bernie Sanders supporters said they would not be willing to pay higher taxes for national health care or free college. This is two-thirds of Bernie supporters wouldn't even be willing to be taxed for it. But they still support these policies because they have been fed this myth that you won't pay a penny. It's all going to be Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Exxon are going to pay the whole thing. As soon as as it becomes clear that you're going to pay for it, the support falls to zero. And that's why... That's why ultimately, I think, getting back to what we talked about earlier, the left is kind of trying to squeeze the spending in first and fudge the numbers on taxes. Because if they had to be upfront about the taxes, support would collapse. So you kind of fudge it now and get the spending locked in and say, we'll worry about the taxes when they're, once, they're, once they're hooked on the entitlements, then we'll, we'll come at them for the taxes later. Um, I, I want to come back to this point because I think there's a philosophical point to be made, but... I, in fairness to, you know, um, the other, the other side, um, we've also heard a great deal from Republicans about how various tax cuts will pay for themselves. Um, I am certainly open to the idea that tax cuts can pay for themselves depending on what the tax cut is. Like I am sure dollars to donuts. I mean, I haven't done the math. But the 90, 91% top tax rate in America um, under Eisenhower, which interestingly was not paid by businessmen. It was paid by um, Hollywood stars mostly because the Hollywood stars had the kind of, first of all, they made a lot of money. But second of all, the businessmen could, re, there were tax loopholes that they could use for their businesses, largely as pastors to get away from it. But the movie stars got caught in the switches which is one reason why I think a lot of movie stars ended up buying oil wells for a oil well, weird oil well production that thing. Anyway, be that as it may, I'm sure cutting the 90% tax rate to 50% pays for itself, right? Because the tax avoidance going on when, when nine out of every $10 you make gets, goes to the government, you're just not going to do that extra work. But if you were, if they were only taking 50, it would pay for itself. Um, but I don't think a lot of the tax cuts that we got under Donald Trump paid for themselves. Um, and isn't this sort of the reverse image of the sort of debt, you know, the Democrats say uh, more spending doesn't cost anything if it's matched with taxes and, and the Republicans say it doesn't cost anything um, allegedly because it makes back the revenue, even though it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, both sides are selling a free lunch. What, what you mentioned about movie stars reminds me of a story President Reagan used to tell, where he said once that for a, for a long period, a lot of actors in Hollywood would only do two movies a year. And the reason is because the third movie would push you into the 91% tax bracket. So they would just stop at two. Um, you know, one of my charts... Uh, some of them would have been better off starting it too. just, you know, <laughs> some of Reagan's movies, but anyway, go on. <laughs> right, right. Well, bedtime for Bonzo, I'm sure it was a huge, huge moneymaker. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a chart that shows that, you know, we collected less in individual income taxes as a share of GDP in the fifties and sixties uh, when we had rates of 90 and, and 70% than we have since with lower, uh, 
tax rates. Obviously, I we all agree there is a Laffer curve. There is a point at which the revenue starts to bend backwards. If you get to that, if you if, if you raise taxes past a certain rate, revenue begins to drop. There's absolutely a Laffer curve. I think a lot of people on the right get confused and say, well, because there's a Laffer curve, we're always on the side of it where uh, cutting taxes will raise revenue. We're not. Uh, income tax rates right now are in the 30s. If you raise income tax rates in the 30s and low 40s, you will get more revenue. It doesn't start to bend backwards until some people say the 60s, perhaps 70, is about where the Laffer curve starts to bend backwards. Interestingly, capital gains were getting close to it. The uh, CBO has said that for capital gains, the Laffer curve starts to bend backwards at about 28% because the thing with capital gains is you decide when you pay capital gains taxes. You decide when you sell the stock. And so you can game the window for cap gains. And that's why there have been times in the past where cap gains cuts have raised revenues in rare instances. But Yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to get some hate mail for this, but the 2017 tax cuts did not pay for themselves. Um, the reason revenue slightly increased in 2018 and 2019 is because of inflation, population, and a phenomenon called real bracket creep, where wages generally grow faster than the income tax brackets. That's going to happen even under lower tax rates. You still have a higher inflation bringing in more revenues. You have a bigger population. If you adjust for that and you compare it to where revenues would have been otherwise, of course, revenues did not, did not um, rise during after the 2017 tax cuts. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that raising taxes to the revenue maximizing point is the optimal policy. Just because you're at you're at the revenue maximizing point doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the economy. Sure, 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 uh, sure. It just means you're to the point where the economic damage is so bad that you're now losing re- that you're now losing revenues. I'll also add because it's worth pointing out that even though the 2017 tax cuts did cost revenue, I have a lot of charts showing they are a relatively small component of the deficit right now. They're about 200 billion a year, and we're talking about a deficit that's gone to $3 trillion a year, and that even after the economy recovers from the pandemic is going to be heading towards one to two, run rising to $2 trillion. At that point, the tax cuts are not the main driver. But yeah, I mean, conservatives sell a free lunch on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, this gets me back to this point about, like during the pandemic, I was in favor of most of the spending. I mean, maybe not this this program or that program. And I think you could have tweaked the unemployment insurance stuff better and turned it into back to work bonuses. And that, I mean, there's all sorts of like policy things we could play with, but generally speaking, I'm one of these guys who spent most of his life saying, look, the government, the government in Washington is only there to do a handful of things. And when those things are required, when, when, when those things are necessary, they're necessary. And, um, you know, it's supposed to fight off foreign invaders. It's supposed to um, figure out how to stop an incoming meteor. It's supposed to deal with pandemics. And, um, and so I was okay with a lot of the rule changes and the weird spending and all that kind of stuff, because this was supposed to be an exogenous once in a century kind of event. That said, so was World War II. And after World War II, we paid for it. You know, we said, okay, we're going to get our books back in order. We haven't done that after after this, and we're not even through this thing yet, right? You know, like one thing we've learned in the last 20 years is 
black swans are a lot more frequent than we thought they'd be. We had the financial crisis. We had 9-11. Basically, every 10 years, we have a huge budget-busting black swan. And the idea of adding another few trillion dollars in debt right now just seems to me ludicrous. But if you could raise the money, some of the money, at least, through tax increases to pay off that spending, that just sounds to me like a responsible thing to talk about. And I don't want to harm the economy. I mean, the kinds of taxes that I would be in favor of and whatnot are different than other people. But um, I guess what I'm getting at, and this gets to the philosophical thing, is I'm a little older than you, but I'm sure you have institutional memory of all of this, that there used to be in the Republican Party the sort of, it wasn't the rhino, it wasn't like the Rockefellers versus the Reaganites. That's a, that's a misremembering of history. It was more like the Taft kind of, you know, live by our means kind of green eye shade Bob Dole types um, versus the sort of Jack Kemp types. And I was always a Jack Kemp kind of guy, right? A Paul Ryan kind of guy. Growth is great. I still believe economic growth is great. All that kind of stuff. It solves all sorts of problems. It, it helps people in the lower rungs get to the higher rungs. It's good stuff. But there's something, the more I think about it, listening to you talk about like all this welfare state stuff, if we had been taxing middle class and poor people a little bit, I don't want to bury them in taxes by any stretch of the imagination, but gave them a sense that they had real skin in the game, they would not be, as you suggest from these polls, willing to do $6 trillion new entitlement spending sprees after already gotten them, ourselves into debt. They would, they would say, I'm not paying for that. But if you tell people it's a free lunch, go for it. Who doesn't want the free lunch? And so as that old sort of Republican green eyed shade stuff, it might've dampened growth to follow it too much. But long-term, it's not clear to me that we wouldn't have been a much healthier and more robust economic situation if we'd followed it more than we did. Is that unfair? Yeah, I think I mean, it's interesting. Republicans, to some degree, have been a victim of their own tax-cutting success. For all the talk we hear about how Republicans just cut taxes for the rich, a big result of the last 40 years of tax cuts is that we've removed, you know, about 40 or 50 million people from the tax rolls. They now have no skin in the game from, from uh, small government and lower taxes. They're not going to pay for anything. They don't pay federal income taxes. They pay payroll taxes. But, at least but they get theory, more from the government for their payroll taxes than they put in, right? Or, right. I mean, in theory, in theory, your payroll taxes are supposed to be set aside for Social Security and Medicare. We know it's not really worked that way, but in theory – they're paying for their Social Security and Medicare benefits. It means a lot of them aren't really paying for anything else government does outside of Social Security and Medicare. And because we've Republicans have, have so aggressively cut taxes for them, they now have no skin in the game. They have no reason to focus on small government because they, it's, they don't think they're going to be the ones paying for it. We've shifted the tax burden so much to the top 20% that Everyone else thinks now, hey, if I'm not paying for anything, the gloves are off. Let, let's, let's spend like crazy. And, you know, it, it's interesting. We, it really is. A, you mentioned what a different era it is today. We ended World War II with a debt of about 106% of the economy, which is pretty close to where it is today. But over the next 30 years, we cut the debt to 23% of GDP. And right now, 
we're projected, instead of cutting it from a from 100 down to 23, we're projected to increase it to 200 to 250% of GDP over the next 30 years. And if the Biden agenda gets enacted, it goes up towards 300% of GDP over the next few decades. It's just a completely different framework than the post-war era. The post-war era, there was a big focus on balanced budgets. And right now, it's we're already facing $112 trillion in baseline deficits. If interest rates rise, it'll go even much higher. And now let's let's add tens of trillions more over 30 years with the Biden agenda. It's just, it's a completely different framework. And, you know, I, I miss the green eye shade Republicans, even if sometimes it means a little higher taxes. There's a certain stewardship and ownership that lawmakers need to take over the long term, rather than just kind of polling what's popular today and what does the base want to hear today. Yeah, I mean, I, and it just sort of philosophically feels like if you're going to promise, you know, the, the left and the right, they're both promising different versions of social solidarity, right? They're pushing these different versions of common good whatever, you know, whether they call it common good capitalism or social justice or whatever, it's this we're all in it together kind of thing. It feels to me like it's worth a couple points of GDP over the long run. If you're going to pursue that sort of philosophy, it's not my philosophy, but, you know, if you're going to pursue that kind of philosophy, to have it actually be true and have everybody pay into it in a, in a way commensurate to what they get out of it because that at least puts people in a mental framework of, of what's the responsible thing to do. I mean, I, I've been writing this column for years now. I may do it again for the G-File this week now that I'm all revved up about this. In development economics, basically, the only way you get to be a democracy is if you have a big middle class. And a big middle class then demands taxa- ta- demands representation for its taxation. And that is the story of basically almost every democratic transition. The one place where it does not happen is in countries with a natural resource cur- curse but they go in development economics. So like if you have enough oil under the ground to pay for everybody's wants and needs without taxing them very much, People, because they're animals, you know, because their nature expresses itself sometimes in laziness and and expediency, people are like, well, what do I need with democracy and representation if I'm getting all the stuff I wanted from democracy and representation? And so it's a way to fund autocracies. And um, and so you see in places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and, and wherever where you can bribe the population not to want democracy and you turn them from being citizens into clients in effect. The way we these days we talk about taxation in this country, or at least the way the left talks about taxation, is they basically see billionaires as a bottomless natural resource. And all we got to do is just pump a little more money out of the money well, and it'll pay for everything. And um, the way they talk about wealth taxes and whatnot, as if they'll work, um, I think it's really bad for democracy because it 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 tells people the wrong things about how democracy works and how our country works. And it fuels more of this kind of economic demagoguery. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's bad for democracy when you essentially have 
no skin in the game at the bottom. You have, let's say, the majority basically believing that they can pillage the 5%, the 2%, the 1%. Um, I, you know, I, I think you, you run into all sorts of problems. And the funny thing is the Democrats didn't always run on that. Um, I remember Bill Clinton, you know, purposely, I was reading one time about how Bill Clinton purposely tried to limit some of his class warfare appeals because he was aware that once you get that going, it can take on such a life of its own and, and kind of be so aggressive tearing apart the fabric of our politics that he was always very careful about it. And I read this in the context of when Al Gore gave his convention speech in 2000, he re- gave a surprisingly revved up class warfare speech. And Bill Clinton responded shocked and very concerned about where this ends up in a couple decades if you push this too hard. And the Democrats have since adopted that more and more and more since 2000, very aggressively. The people versus the powerful, the 80% can pillage the, the, you know, the, the top 2% or whatever. And it becomes extremely dangerous for a democracy because there's really no end game to this. There's really no check on how mu- how aggressive they can go if they want. When again, there's no skin at the game at the bottom, and there's really no check on their democratic power. I'm not saying necessarily. I'm not trying to sound like I'm. Let's feel bad for poor Jeff Bezos. That's not my. Jeff Bezos has money. I'm sure Jeff Bezos can afford a higher degree of taxes. I'm not trying to say he can't. But the question is, how, where does this end up, and how aggressively does it go? And that, that's what makes me a little nervous, especially when we're talking about policies that go way beyond anything Europe does. Um, I, I worry about it. And like I said, Republicans are partially responsible for this because they're the ones who took the bottom half off the tax rolls because they were, you know, they, they were very aggressively cutting taxes across the board in 2001 and 2017. And when you cut them across the board, the rich may dip somewhat. And the poor who are paying a little bit can can dip below zero. And now you start to have some of these social fabric issues. Yeah. And, and just in fairness, I don't think what Republicans did there was evil. In fact, I think it was very well-intentioned. And I think you probably do too. I mean, like there are serious policy arguments about rewarding work and that you shouldn't tax people. You should not live in poverty if, if you work 40 hours a week at a real job that, you know, and our tax code should reflect that. I get those moral arguments. I'm just saying that, that, I, 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 I personally didn't appreciate the downside of some of them in terms of the culturally distorting effects of it, the way I, the way I, at least I feel like I do now. Um, quick question before we get back to the debt stuff. Um, I know you stay in your lane and I appreciate it. You're, you know, you got your green eye shade and, and you got your, you know, your, your, um, sort of Burgess Meredith from the twilight zone in your bunker with all your books and, and, and charts and whatnot. Um, you're an informed guy about what's going on on the right generally and all that kind of stuff. I hear a lot from the conservatives. I, the right wingers, I'll call them who I really passionately disagree with who now want industrial policy. And you know, the JD Vance is talking about seizing the assets of institutions they doesn't like. And to me, (coughs) if you crossed out the proper names um, of the institutions and the politicians, it sounds like, wildly left-wing to me you know it's just it's it's bolshevism it's right-wing bolshevism as far as i'm concerned for a lot of it um uh and then there's like the common good people and all that kind of stuff have any of them talked about 
tax stuff and debt and deficit stuff in ways that I haven't heard. Cause I, mean, I just listening to you talk. I was like, gosh, I, you know, I've heard Rubio talk a lot about working people and, and, and I've heard Vance talk about the common man and Holly, Holly on all these kinds of guys. I haven't heard any of them talk about debt and deficits at all. And so am I, am I missing something? Are the new national conservative guys, do they have a great plan for balancing the budget that I've, I'm unaware of? Absolutely not. They are, um, in my discussions with them and my reading of what they've put out, they're just completely hand-waving away the fiscal consequences of what they're talking about. They're, they're kind of discussing as if we have all this fiscal room for all, for all this new spending. And it's just a question of who should get the benefits, you know, the rich versus the work at the working class. But there's, there's really no grappling, grappling at all with the long-term fiscal consequences. The fact that we already have an enormous baseline deficit. Some of them, I mean, you do get some degree of well, we'll tax. We're going to tax the rich. We're going to tax the multinationals. We're going to hit the corporations. You know, there's a there's some degree of don't worry. We're going to bring in some revenue. The reality, of course, is that kind of stuff won't even pay for a fraction of what they're proposing. But ultimately, I think that's. It's not an accident that they're not talking about the long-term fiscal consequences because I think a big reason a lot of conservatives are talking about this stuff is because they have decided that talking about fiscal responsibility is a political loser. Um, the, the, the Republican Party used to be a bit of a Paul Ryan party, even if a lot of people didn't fully grasp it. Trumpism replaced Paul Ryanism. In 2016, the Trump coalition emphatically wanted Social Security benefits without reform, Medicare benefits without reform. This was a coalition that was more populist, working class, and had a lot more seniors. Ultimately, Republicans, Republican lawmakers realized their base doesn't want spending cuts. They're too unpopular. And so they cut taxes. And that made it even more difficult to talk about the deficit because you, regardless of what you think of the tax cuts, it's really hard to, to talk about why we need to cut Medicare right after you gave Exxon a tax cut. And so I think what ultimately happened is conservative lawmakers went looking for something else to talk about. We, we don't, fiscal responsibility is a loser with our populist and senior base. Let's find something else we can give to our voters. Aha, industrial policy middle-class benefits, working-class benefits, the common man stuff, that has replaced fiscal responsibility as a way for Republicans to now be Santa Claus. We can't give more tax cuts at the bottom because they don't pay taxes. Our base doesn't want spending cuts. They're unpopular. So this is, it, it always struck me, and I, I hate to, I, I, I hate to kind of look at motive, but it seems like a lot of lawmakers on the right saw their the, the Republican base become more working class, big government populist, and just went searching for a philosophical argument to appeal to these people rather than the, the argument came first. I think they're just kind of looking, they're taking anything off the shelf that will appeal to this new coalition and get them off the hook for talking about our long-term fiscal unaffordability of all the stuff. All right, just very quickly, I know you got to go. Uh... Um, and I got to go go buy cyanide tablets. Um, so you're saying that we're looking at in the nearest term, you know, over the next, by 2030 or so, uh, or maybe it was the next 30 years. It doesn't really matter. We're looking at 
a national debt of 200 or even 300% of GDP, right? Mm -hmm. Has anybody turned around that level of debt um, in a way that is, uh, that one, that, that could give one hope in some way? The only other country that's had a debt, a central government debt even approached 200% of GDP was Japan. Uh, they're close to 200% of GDP. And some people say, well, look, Japan proves you won't, you won't collapse under this kind of debt. The difference is, first off, Japan's been a basket case for 30 years. <laughs> They've had virtually no economic growth for 30 years. Additionally, it's, e it's easier to finance your debt in Japan where the savings rates are astronomical. Corporate retained earnings are 89% of GDP in Japan. Corporations <laughs> are just sitting on cash that is equal to 89% of GDP and giving it all to the government uh, uh, to spend on this. America doesn't have that. Um, and, and also, our debt is going to get bigger than Japan's. Um, they, th their debt kind of leveled off at about 200% of GDP. Ours is going to keep accelerating higher and higher and higher because our deficits are so much bigger. And that's the only comparable economy that's had a debt that big. I'll also just quickly add, because all the comments I get are, stop worrying about the debt, interest rates are low, stop worrying about the debt, interest rates are low. There is no guarantee interest rates will stay low. Uh, interest rates are about 1.5% today, but Washington does not lock in, in long-term interest rates. We use short-term borrowing. If interest rates rise, the cost of our debt will rise accordingly. And the idea that we should gamble our entire financial future on the promise that interest rates are never going to rise above the current rates ever again in the next hundred years is ludicrous. Economic variables fluctuate. Interest rates rise. Sometimes they go up. Sometimes they go down. And any, any theory that says this works if we just assume interest rates never rise again strikes me as insanity. Because first off, economic forecasters have a terrible track record. I mean, think of all the, you know, no one predicted the, the, the stock crash in 2000. No one predicted the housing or a few people predicted the housing crash in 06. Keynesian economists in the 60s were convinced we defeated the business cycle. We defeated inflation. They were wrong. The idea that these economic forecasters have nailed it and we've defeated interest rates forever no matter what even as the factors that caused low interest rates reverse themselves is ludicrous because if they're wrong and interest rates do rise at any point in the future, there's no backup plan. <laughs> and the cost of, I, I mentioned this to you last time I was on the podcast. If interest rates rise by one point higher than CBO projects, that will add $30 trillion in 30 years in interest costs. One point. So if they go up by two points, that's $60 trillion over 30 years. So the question is, for those who would say interest rates are low, are you feeling lucky? Because they better stay low forever. Right. Also, all, built into all these assumptions are that our reserve currency, that the U.S. remains the global reserve currency. It, it doesn't think into, take into account the possibility of a war with China. I mean, that's my point about the black swan thing is that there are just so many exogenous, you know, there's so many like, out of the blue kind of events for all, look, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's actually unlikely to happen, but there's nothing written in stone that says we couldn't get a new variant of COVID that is far deadlier and totally like in, in brushes off the vaccines. Um, 
Um, you just don't know. And the idea that I, I, I just, it's, you know, I mean, I used to remember thinking what a dinosaur Bob Dole was. He used to tell this joke about how, you know, uh, there's good news and bad news. And he says, um, the good news is a busload of supply side economists went off a cliff. Uh, the bad news is two of the seats were empty. <laughs> you know? um, and I like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, like, doesn't he like growth? Doesn't he like whatever? And like, would that we, you know, would that we had listened a little more about this live within our means kind of thing and, and sort of traditional values of, of restraint and thrift and all that kind of stuff. Yes, we would be, you know, Jeff Bezos might not be worth $130 billion right now. He might only be worth $100 billion right now. But we would be in better shape, you know. And um, it's very, very depressing, you know. It's just very, 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 very depressing. Um, Last question, and then I know you really got to go. If you could have the mix of taxes to help us turn the, and spending, I mean, I understand the kind of spending you want to do, mix of entitlement reform and all that kind of stuff. What is your preferred mode of revenue raising for taxes? Do you, would you get rid of the corporate income tax? Would you do a VAT? What would you do? I would not get a VAT, even though most economists will tell you a VAT is more efficient because you're going to get, if you do a VAT, you're going to get a VAT that's going to be as big as zero. Once you create a VAT, it's going to go to 15, 20%. I, I don't want to give government the ability to raise that much money. I would love to significantly scale back the corporate tax and specifically to make sure that our, our, our multinationals can compete with, without one hand tied behind their back. I would love to lower taxes on investment, lower corporate taxes, lower, lower capital gains taxes. Um, I, I think that's probably the best way to do it. I'm not sure we can afford it right now, though. And so if we're just looking at, at what taxes would we raise, the plan that I put out a couple of years ago on entitlement reform was overwhelmingly on entitlement reform, social security, Medicare changes. But I did propose gradually um, cutting in half the tax exclusion for employer-provided health care over 30, over 30 years, which, is, which, which basically subsidizes rising health care costs. I think it would be more efficient to, to kind of ha- have people pay taxes on half of their employer health benefits. And I had proposed um, raising payroll taxes one or two percentage points as part of a Social Security and Medicare reform plan, simply because even if you do the most aggressive reform plans that still protect people at the bottom, you can't get there from here just with good conservative plans. You, you, you just, they don't, it's not enough to bring them into balance. And so I thought raise taxes in the in a broad way that minimizes economic damage, like a payroll tax hike of one or two percent. And I've come around to the belief that, um, you know, if they want to do some modest income tax rate increases on on the wealthy, raise the top rate up from thirty nine point or two thirty nine point six or a little higher. Ten years ago, I would have said hell no. And now um, now my thought is, yeah, you could probably do a few more percentage points for the rich, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's, I don't think it's great economics, but politically, if it buys the other things, it kind of makes sense, right? All right, Brian Riedel, thank you very much. I am sorry about the peerless state of of, of your various sports ball things in, in, in your home state. And uh, uh, I I thought people were depressed enough. I didn't want to ask you anything about the Brewers because I know that really sets you off. So, but um, 
Um, thanks again for coming. Everybody, you can get it. You can get it through the the show notes, or just go to the Manhattan Institute website. Um, it makes for some grim reading, but it's it helps you understand the state of things. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Okay, uh, Brian Riedel has left the studio, and um, uh, I I warned people up front. It's not like there wasn't a, a trigger warning that it was going to be a depressing conversation. But I think it's an important conversation. And um, um, my only problem, and I think one of the reasons why we don't talk more about the debt and deficit stuff is because everybody knows at either consciously or subconsciously that it's a huge problem, but it's just too friggin' difficult to figure out how to deal with. And so, and the other added problem is, is that the nature of the problem doesn't change. It's, um, it's a lot of debt. It's too much spending. And so it, it kind of gets boring after a while because it's the same conversation in a lot of ways, just the numbers are worth. It's sort of like talking about that asteroid that's heading towards Earth. It's a big asteroid. It's closer this year. Next year, it's going to be even closer. 10 years, it's going to be really close. And then the planet is going to liquefy into hot magma and we'll all be dead. Um, and you just try to like put it out of mind rather than sort of uh, think about you know the unthinkable and it's it's uh why we're kind of on autopilot with this stuff i don't know that it's going to spell spend the end spell the end of america or any of that kind of thing um i just do know that it's 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 unsustainable and therefore it's going to end and the question is how does it end and it seems to me there are a lot of bad ways for it to end and um and that almost nobody in Washington is thinking and doing anything responsible about it. So, uh, there you go. Buy gold. Um, I was going to have some announcements, but I can't remember what they are. Um, so instead I'll just, uh, see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.